Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let me turn that last song into a, into a prayer for you as we open God's word. So bow with me and let me lead you in prayer. Would you make it your prayer now to say, oh Lord, still my soul. Would you admit to God this? God, when I open your word, oftentimes I argue against it and I make excuses for why it doesn't apply to me. And God, when I hear a sermon, I often apply it to somebody else, but not me. God, would you still my soul and would you silence my arguments and would you wipe away my excuses and would you do your good, deep work in me? Amen. Amen. In Isaiah 24 and 25 and 26, the controlling image is a feast, but not just a feast. The controlling image is a group of people getting together and clinking their glasses and celebrating. So let's take that image. We've all either done that or or experienced that or we know what that is. And let's say that that's happening in the one of the farms that butts right up here against our church. Say three neighboring farmers are getting together out on the porch and they raise a glass together and they're celebrating. The reason they're celebrating, the reason those three farmers are celebrating is because a fourth farmer, uh, through hardship and difficulty, that their other neighbor farmer, this fourth farmer, couldn't finish bringing in the harvest. And so these three families, they gathered together and they went and did all the work for their neighbor and gave the neighbor all the grain that they brought in. And so now our three neighbors are getting together and clinking their glasses because out of love they sacrificed for their neighbor and they were able to do something good. That's wonderful. And that's the feast in Isaiah 25 and 26. But let's flip it, the, the exact same action. Three neighbors butting up against our church here in their farms, they're getting together and they're clinking their glasses. But this is a scene, more like a scene from the Godfather. This is the feast in Isaiah 24. Our three neighbors are getting together and they're clinking their glasses because their other neighbor, this fourth farmer, went through hardship. And these three neighbors, they defrauded him, they backstabbed him, and they got all of his land for themselves. Is both a feast and a celebration, but one is a feast at the table of the city of man. The other is a feast at the table of the city of God. And this is the difference between Isaiah 24 and then Isaiah 25 and 26. All of Isaiah 13 through 23 
are Isaiah's oracles against the nations. And we've been tracking through those the last few weeks. That's 13 through 23. Then in 24 is almost like a final oracle, but it isn't just against one nation. It's God's judgment against the whole earth and all the nations. In fact, chapter 24 ends with God judging, so to speak, the sun and the moon and the stars, the whole thing. And then in 25 and 26 is the salvation, celebration at a feast that God provides for his redeemed. The feast in Isaiah 24, if you just look at uh, verses 7 through 9, it's like an anti-feast. Verse 7 of Isaiah 24, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, no mirth of the lyre is any longer, no more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. This is the feast of the city of man. Oh, a couple chapters earlier, they were clinking their glasses just like in that scene from The Godfather because they had defrauded and through violence and greed, they had taken advantage of their neighbor. But now, that feasting is over. And the feast in Isaiah 25, we read it during our time of singing and worship, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined, and he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples and the veil that's spread over the nations, and he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The feast in the city of man ends in greedy drunkenness that produces vomiting and poverty. So there's no more singing and no more wine. The feast that begins by God and is celebrated in the city of God ends in a joy which overwhelms and overcomes death itself so that the feasting never ends. Augustine, uh, maybe 300 or f less than 400 years after Jesus died and rose again, he wrote his great work, The, the City of God, one of those 1,300-page books that I had to read so you don't have to read it. And he says in there, two cities have been formed by two loves. Never forget that. Every Supreme Court decision, every vote, every, every issue, it comes back to what do you value? What do you love? Two cities have been formed by two loves the earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, but the latter, in a word, glories in the Lord. The former seeks the glory that comes from men, but the latter, the greater glory that comes from God. The city of man seeks to lift up its own head in its own strength. 
Those who belong to the city of God, they say from the heart, thou art my glory and the lifter of my head. The city of man, the city of God. Isaiah 24 is the culmination of all of the oracles against the city of man. We could just read, say, the first nine or ten verses. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. What that means is when God returns, the situation of an impoverished individual in India who doesn't have a bowl of rice and Elon Musk will be exactly the same. As with the seller, so with the buyer. Everything's leveled. He says in verse 3, The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people of the earth languish, and the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, they have violated the statutes, and they have broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore... A curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. The city of man was filled with drunken singing because they got away with everything they wanted to get away with. But in the end, it ends in poverty and emptiness. He says in verse 1, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. That word empty is significant because if you know your Bible, God made the earth and then he made two very special people just like you and me and he told them to do something on the earth. What did he tell them to do? Fill it. God said, fill it. Fill the earth. I don't want the earth to be empty. I want the earth to be filled with singing and beauty and joy and little babies and everything. But because we sinned, the earth will be emptied. Isaiah also uses the language of Genesis in verse 10 when he says the wasted city is broken down. I'm not sure wasted is the, is the best translation. Isaiah is using the word from the Hebrew of uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 when Moses wrote, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The earth was unformed. The earth was the opposite of a cosmos. It was a chaos. It was a city of confusion. It was a city of chaos. This is the city of man. The city of man stands for a world structured without reference to God. And so we may think that it's ordered and safe, but it is far from ordered and it is utterly unsafe 
because it's a lump of clay without form or beauty, because it is unwilling to be touched by the hands of the potter. That's the city of man, spinning, unformed, and empty. And when that city ends and all sin is judged, then we move to a different banquet and a different feast. And this is where we get to turn to Isaiah 25 and 26. And when we began Isaiah chapter 1, oh man, I have my eye on Isaiah 25 and 26 because these are two of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. They're so sweet. The great banquet is the centerpiece. And the great banquet is verses 6 through uh, 8. And the way chapter 25 lays out is 6 through 8 is the great banquet. And then verses 1 through 5 is a song of praise to God for providing the banquet. And verses 9 through 12 are a song of praise to God for providing salvation and the banquet. So the first song of praise is verses 1 through 5. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it'll never be rebuilt. This is the end, it'll never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. The drunken song of the city of man has been put down. And all that's left is their puddles of vomit and poverty. And we praise God for that. You see the praises in verses 1 through 5? Verse 1 praises God for carrying out his plans that were from long ago. This is is our theological truth that we don't think about nearly enough. God's plans, are you hearing me? God's plans are not a response to our plans. God's plan comes before there was ever a you to make any plans to begin with. His plans come first, and they are eternal. And we praise him for that. In verse 2, we praise God for knocking down his opponents. You don't think Israel whooped and hollered when David took out Goliath? This is good to rejoice when the opponents of God are defeated. Verse 3, We praise God because he secures recognition and honor from the worst governments and the worst nations. Verse 4, this is special. Verse 4, we praise God because he has, in an omnipotently powerful way, helped the weakest, the weakest and the neediest in human society. And so we praise him. And then verses 6 through 8 is the centerpiece of the text, and that's the the great feast, the the great feast. And in this great feast, notice that the best of everything is available for everyone. 
verse 6, for all people, for all people. And it's the best food, the best wine, the best wine well-refined, and the best food full of marrow. This is such a big concept to take it in. And I, I, I want to preach this chapter in particular because uh, we're, I'm, I'm about to quote from Genesis through to Revelation. This is big stuff. And I, I love, I love pre- preaching this chapter to you because one of the reasons I wanted to bring us to Isaiah is because, oh, it's because, it's because your world is way too small. And I sympathize deeply with you when your world is filled with worry and pain because of something difficult. But in those moments, your world becomes so small. And the world that God presents in the scripture should make your heart bigger, should make your mind bigger, should make your imagination bigger, and should make you able to be filled with sorrow and hope at the same time. And that's what a text like Isaiah 25 and 26 does. The commentator, uh, Alec Matier, says these verses prove, listen to this, these verses prove that ultimate eternal reality is a banquet with no expense spared and every provision made and with nothing to mar our enjoyment of it and every grief and death and every tear wiped away. This is what I mean about this being a big concept that will require your imagination to break out of your little world to see God's plan. And this is so good for us. I think, I kind of think Isaiah knows, just like I know, that when you're communicating to a person like me or a person like you, my... I get so myopic about how things are going for me and what my feelings are at the moment that it's hard for me to believe this and it's hard for me to imagine this. And this is so good and so grand that it almost seems impossible for me to believe. And I think that's why verse 8, why would Isaiah say at the end of verse 8, for the Lord has spoken? Isaiah said in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 1, this is a prophecy from the Lord. We already know that the Lord is speaking through every chapter, but I wonder if at times like this when it would require our imagination to do something so stupendous that just, just al- almost like a self-reflective, sorrowful defensiveness, we're like, that's too good to be true, and Isaiah's like, no, the Lord said it. Is he lying? Or is it possible that your imagination is warped? The Lord said it. The Lord said it. Wow. I want to chase this theme of the feast throughout the whole Bible. And don't worry, I'll do it in six minutes or less. <laughs> you know, when God gave the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 through about 24, a big part of it, it's a, it's a, it's a little line in the text, but a big part of it is God welcomed his people to feast with him. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. In Exodus 24, Verses 1 through 11, the key verse is verse 11. But it says in Exodus 24, and when he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, 
All the words that the Lord has spoken, we want to do them. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we'll be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accord with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Instead of being vaporized in the presence of God, they ate and drank in the presence of God. What a promise. It's mentioned in the Psalms. It's mentioned in several of the prophets. It's mentioned here very strongly in Isaiah 25. Isaiah is singing this same song in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which isn't bread? And why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God welcomes his people to the feast and it requires no money on their part. The feast is used several times throughout the Gospels as an image of the finality of the kingdom of God. And in Luke 22, you probably don't even have to turn there because you recognize this. Almost every time we take communion, we read from Luke 22 and listen to exactly what Jesus says. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he says the same thing about the cup. He's talking about the end, the final end, which we call the eschaton, the last things. And he says, I'm not going to feast like this again until I get to feast like this with you, like Yahweh did with Moses and Aaron. And so that's why it's, makes sense to us when in one of the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, we read these words in verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And he said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper or the marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verses six through nine. This great theme of the feast, you say, what is it, 
How does having my imagination expand to that help me? Well, I'll tell you. There's one difference that it ought to make to you internally in your own life, and there's one difference that it ought to make externally in the, the, the reason you live with others. And the, the change that I want it to make internally in your life, here it is, is it, here it is in a sentence. Our feast is coming so we can go without for now if we have to. Our feast is coming so we can go without for now if we have to. Life is hard. If you have a pastor who tells you life isn't hard, he's not a good pastor. Life is hard. And if you have a pastor who says this, uh, if you listen to me and do what I tell you to do, your life on this earth will no longer be hard, he's also not a good pastor. He's over-promising and under-delivering. Life is hard. And if you obey everything in the Bible, it still doesn't mean that your life on this planet will be easy. What a faithful pastor says is life is hard and we have to go through it for a little while, but we do not have to go through it forever. That's the reality. That's the reality. Our feast is coming and we can go without for now if we have to for a little while. If that's the difference it makes internally, I hope you can already see the difference it makes externally and that is that we have a mission and that mission is what? to gobble down all the food all by ourselves in a corner? No. You greet people like you, you go to Old Country Buffet and you just take everything, sneeze on the rest of it so nobody can have it. This is not the point. The point is, he says in verse 6, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people, all people. This means that our mission is to invite everyone everywhere to get in on this feast. If the, if the woman we are inviting has had multiple abortions, we invite her to come into this feast. If the person we are inviting has done this or that or failed in this or that way, we invite them into the feast because the Lord God said, you don't have to pay for your way in. Jesus paid it and his blood can cover every sin, every sin. God offers everyone a place at the table. Everyone may come in, but there is only one table. It's the table at which Jesus Christ is the head. It's the table at which Jesus Christ puts a towel around himself so he can wash your feet. But make no mistake, Jesus is the Lord at that feast and the only way in is to say Jesus is Lord. So our gospel is universal and so our gospel is particular. Particularity, verse six, on this mountain, not any mountain, Mount Zion, where Jesus will land when he returns, on this mountain. So first half of verse six, per particularity. The second half of verse six, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast. First half, particularity. Second half, universality. This feast is inclusive and this feast is exclusive. 
It is inclusive in that everybody everywhere, no matter what they have done, is invited. And it's free. But it's exclusive because it is only on God's mountain where Jesus is found. So church, share this with everyone everywhere. This is the best news ever. One of the things that makes it the best news is verse 7, that he swallows up death. Verse 7 and 8, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Death here is called a veil. Death here is called that which produces tears. And again, in just a, uh, under a couple of minutes to trace this theme of the veil of death from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Genesis 2.17, God said to the very first two special people that he created on the day, well, he said, you can eat from every tree except this one. And on the day you eat from this one, you shall surely die. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament, the soul that sins shall die. It's repeated in Paul's gospel proclamation, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. But the promise is that God himself will somehow swallow up death. God, who is immortal and invincible, how could God swallow up and even experience death? The Son of God, the second member of the perfect eternal trinity, Without giving up his deity, he took on humanity. He took on flesh so that he could die in our place. And this is why he's able to swallow up death, because he died our death at Golgotha. And we take it all the way through to Revelation, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And I saw him, and I saw him, and I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's such a reverent scene that I, I, I hate to even guess that John is making a play on words. But he says there, when I saw Jesus, I felt like I was dead. And Jesus said, No, you're not. I died. Now you don't have to die. And I have the keys to death and hell. We find the same thing in Revelation 21, verse 4. It says there, you know, God, the, it says in verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man and he'll dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Same scene as from Exodus 24. They're eating and drinking in the presence of God. Verse 4, and he will wipe every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Paul brings this verse, Paul brings the exact verse from Isaiah up in 1 Corinthians. And your Bible ought to naturally open to 1 Corinthians if you're faithful in ABF, because we've been in that text in ABF. And he quotes Isaiah in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? And the therefore is, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's comforting to me that Paul's 
applicatory emphasis as an expository preacher was the same as the original authorial intent of Isaiah as the, the prophet who first declared what later generations will exposit and preach from. Because Isaiah's point in Isaiah 25 is that if God has swallowed up death and God has promised chapters 13 through 24 to judge every nation, then the one emphatic point that Isaiah was trying to make was, therefore, Israel, don't be afraid of Egypt. Don't be afraid of Assyria. And don't be afraid of death. Stand strong in the name of the Lord. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Church in the New Testament times, don't be afraid of Nero. Don't, don't deny Christ so that you can keep your life. Be steadfast, immovable, courageous, bold, have faithful fortitude, even if they threaten you with death. Which is the same point I've been trying to make out of Isaiah. Church, we live in a world that is crazy. And we live in a world that has about 18 ways every day that we should be afraid. New ways every day that we should be afraid. You name it. It's a source of fear. The world is invested in penetrating your soul with panic so that your imagination will imagine what the world wants you to imagine and so you'll make decisions along their lines. You need to be liberated from that. And this is the way. This is the way. How does the fact that death is swallowed up change our perspective here and now? Here it is in one sentence. Death is defeated so we can face sickness and persecution without fear. Death is defeated. Death has been defeated so we can face sickness and persecution without fear without ultimate fear. Of course it's gonna be hard. Of course there are gonna be sleepless nights of tears where you feel afraid, but your ultimate fear has been taken away if you believe that Jesus swallowed up death. And as we quickly go on through chapter 25, the verbs in verse nine are so instructive. You see them? It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Here's your homework. Just take verse 9, just memorize it, and then just meditate on this one question. What actions are attributed to you and what actions are attributed to God? In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9. And if you get that, what actions are attributed to you and which actions are attributed to God, then you get it. God does it all. God's actions are all in all. In verse 9 is his action of salvation. We waited for him and he saved us. We could almost make a mini outline like this. Verse 9, God's act of salvation. Well, it began in verse 6, God's act of provision. God provides the wine. God provides the meat. Verse 6, God's act of provision. Verse 9, God's act of salvation. And then we could say verses 7 and 8 are God's act of destruction. What is it that God destroys? Oh, God destroys death. 
Death is what threatened to destroy you. God destroys death. Death was going to swallow you up like Sheol, the grave, reaches out with its mauling jaws to take you in, and God swallows up death. He does it all. And he does it with style. Look at verse 11. What does this mean? He will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. What does that mean? The image is great. And the image requires some humiliation on my part. My wife loves me very much. Also, I even think it's true that she respects me. But she makes terrible fun of me for the way that I swim. <laughs> She's like, you splash, you waste water, you don't know how to swim. You know, and I was tempted to say I've never had a lesson, but I did. I did have swimming lessons, but I was like seven years old in San Fernando, California, and they, they just taught you not to drink the pool water, <laughs> not to do something else in the pool water, and basically how to not die in the pool water. And so I, but I just, you know, my stroke's not clean and I splash too much. The image there, when it says that God's going to do this like a swimmer, it means that Babylon, world financial powers, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum. God's not going to, it's not going to take a lot of splashy effort for God to topple them. Like cutting through water is what it's going to be like. Not only will he win, but he'll win in a perfectly poised, perfect 10 kind of way. This is what Isaiah wants us to know. And I got to show you my favorite verse out of Isaiah 26 before we're done. It says in Isaiah 26, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And here they are. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in the Lord. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He has humbled the inhabitants of the city, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. His foot tramples the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In your paths, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. I hope you can see why Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4 are favorite verses of ours. It says you will keep him in perfect peace. You remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah wanted to say God is very holy. There's no word very in the Hebrew language, so it's holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew of this verse says God will keep him in peace, peace. True peace, deep peace, not false peace. Go back to the city of man. The peace in the city of man comes from drunken diversion. The peace in the city of man comes from entertainment and denial. The peace in the city of God is peace, peace, true peace. So what this means is we trust in the Lord 
And this delivers us from trusting in tottering things. That's the lesson of perfect peace. We trust in the Lord. So this delivers us from trusting in tottering things, things that'll fall down, things that won't last. Verses three and four have long been favorite verses of ours. Amy and I memorized those verses decades ago. Yesterday, we were up at like 3 a.m. yesterday, not because something bad happened, because we wanted to. Maybe a couple of you did this. Because the, I don't know anything about astronomy, but the, all the planets aligned. And so we wanted to get up before the cloud cover came in. And we, got, we just got to see it, that little, you've seen a picture of it if you've never seen it in real life. We wanted to see it in real life, just that crescent moon and then all the planets lined up. And we were just talking about God and his starry hosts and we were reflecting on this verse. And it's just, it's just so obvious, but while we were looking at that, Amy said to me something like, you know, Spence, the more, the more I know God and fear God and trust God, the more everything else lines up. And the less I look to God and the less I trust God, the, 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 the less lined up everything is. And I think that's exactly right. You keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The Lord God is an everlasting rock. How do we know that faith in God works? Because God is an everlasting rock. And again, I think Isaiah's word choice is important. He doesn't just say that God is an all-powerful rock, though he is. He emphasizes God's eternality, the fact that, that before there was a you, there was a God. This is where peace comes from. If my, if my relationship with God is, well, I'm just running around bumbling everything up and God is somehow responding to what I do and helping me along the way, this is not sufficient. The God who is helping you along the way is the everlasting God who had plans for you before there was a you to have plans for. Isaiah knows as I know, there is something especially strong about a theology that goes back before the foundation of the world. Because if your theology goes back before the foundation of the world, hello, you're no longer the center of anything. Because there was a God and there were plans before there was a you. And so, and so everything becomes more worshipful and more trustful and more relaxed because God is the everlasting rock. And notice that chapter 26 begins with in that day. And notice that chapter 26 emphasizes waiting on God. You see that in verse eight, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Our soul yearns for you and we wait for you. And perhaps that can be our final truth. We wait for the Lord to return. And he gives us peace and confidence in the meantime. We wait for the Lord to return. And he gives us peace and confidence in the meantime. There would, there's, the text beginning with in that day means that everything hasn't been made right yet and there's gonna be pain and difficulty and disappointment, but we wait 
And because we wait for the Lord, he gives us peace and confidence in the meantime. And so as God's people, we need to learn how to wait on the Lord. The peace that God gives us is a peace that, that comes from faith in him. And so church, I would commend to you to, to, to ask the Lord to still your soul and to stamp these truths into your soul. We wait for the Lord to return. And he gives us peace and confidence in the meantime. We trust in the Lord, so we are delivered from trusting in tottering things. Death is defeated, so we can face sickness and persecution without fear. Our feast is coming, so if need be, we can go without in the meantime as we wait for that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've asked you to still our soul and remove our excuses and broaden our faith and our hope, now we thank you for doing so by the preaching of your word. O oh, living God, may the peace and joy and confidence that you put in your people draw them through the valley, draw them through the hard times, with a trust and a hope in you, Lord Jesus, in you and in you alone. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.